attention, please. You're listening to TalkZone.com, Internet Talk Radio. Now, the Dr. Robbins Show, talking about your good health. Featuring Larry Robbins, MD, and co-host Susie Robbins, MSW, on TalkZone.com. Here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins. Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Robbins Show. I'm here with my co-host, Susie Robbins. Susie is a medical social worker. I'm a neurologist, and each week we bring you hot medical topics du jour. We try to interpret the medical news of the day because it really does get confusing for people. This week we do have a wonderful show, and we'll kick it off with a headline, Kentucky County's Sue Makers of Hillbilly Heroin, which is OxyContin. Now, several Kentucky counties filed suit against OxyContin and the maker, Purdue Pharmaceuticals, which they've called that OxyContin Hillbilly Heroin because it's been greatly abused in certain areas of Kentucky and certain areas of the United States. OxyContin is a powerful narcotic opioid that is very useful. I do use it in my practice. For people who use it appropriately, it can be a very good painkiller, and it does not have acetaminophen, which is Tylenol, or aspirin attached to it. It's just pure, so it doesn't really irritate the liver or kidneys usually. However, some people have figured out that they crush and uh, shoot it, just like heroin, or they snort it, or generally overuse it, just like any narcotic can be overused. The real problem was how the company, Purdue, marketed the drug. When it, I, I remember it came out about 10 years ago, about 1997, and the marketing was very aggressive. They said some things that they shouldn't have said. They never said that it was not addicting, but they minimized that. There were a number of problems. And it, it has led to some overdoses and deaths uh, and abuses, but there's two sides to the story. Around 1999, Purdue, the company, got much better and really reversed course. They marketed it very appropriately after that. It, it was really the first few years that were the big problem. And uh, the other side is that OxyContin, which is now generic, is uh, long-acting oxycodone or controlled-release oxycodone, is a very useful drug for chronic pain when other things haven't worked. It's fairly strong. It does get people euphoric or high, uh, and it has the side effects, the usual tiredness or constipation. But used appropriately, it's a fairly good drug. It's just some people have not used it appropriately, and they overdose, and there have been some deaths. Now, Susie, uh, what's your take on um, painkillers or addiction or OxyContin? Well, you know, we've talked about this before, and unfortunately for many people, whatever's available, they're going to take and use and get hooked on. So whether it be the OxyContin that this lawsuit is talking about in Kentucky, if people have an access to a drug and they can get it, they'll take it. If it's not OxyContin, well, would it be something else? Probably. Now, you worked in a methadone maintenance clinic, and OxyContin does give a similar feeling to heroin. Did you see any people who were addicted to OxyContin, or was it mostly heroin? For me, it was mostly heroin that I saw. And then after or while they were trying to get off the heroin, they would stay on the methadone and then for some time period be basically addicted to the methadone. Yeah, methadone uh, itself is addicting, but it's better and it's more controlled than heroin, and they don't have to shoot it or get dirty needles, etc. But OxyContin, the pro one problem with OxyContin is it gives a relatively short-acting high or feeling. It's not 
smooth and very long-acting. I think there's better long-acting uh, pain medications available that are smooth and, and last 16, 18, 24 hours. OxyContin, part of the problem when they originally came out with it, they had all, all of this elaborate materials that were wrong, and, and I think they knew that they were wrong, uh, that it lasted 12 hours. And they blamed us and they blamed the patients when it wore off at 4 to 6. They said, oh, no, no, the patients are making that up. Or, uh, but it wasn't true. It wears off OxyContin for many people at 5 or 6 hours or even shorter. And uh, so they ended up chasing it, uh, using it every 4 or 6 hours and overusing the medicine. Then they'd run out, go through withdrawal. That narcotic withdrawal is not as dangerous as alcohol withdrawal, but it's a horrible feeling. You know, as far as the FDA and the government controlling things, I th- we need some regulation. We can't uh, let doctors just willy-nilly prescribe anything to anybody. You need documentation. Doctors who prescribe pain medicines uh, that are powerful and daily need to do certain things and certain documenting, and they have to check how people are functioning and that they're not overusing things. But we don't want too much control because that punishes the millions of people with chronic pain. Uh, we don't want a situation where doctors are prosecuted or the departments of regulation come down on them because then they just say, oh, no, I just won't use these medicines. You know, in my own practice, I deal mostly with headaches, uh, a lot with depression and anxiety and uh, some chronic pain. We do use these medicines, but if I cut out pain medicines, if I said I don't use opioids or pain medicine, like a lot of doctors say, it would cut out many of our difficult phone calls uh, from pharmacies, from patients, from patients' families, but it would punish the 9 out of 10 people who don't overuse these. So it's a fine line. I'm wondering, what's the long-term outcome for a lot of these people that are, are medicating themselves with OxyContin? Do they, many of them, are they able to get over the addiction and live cleanly, or do many of them then just search and, and latch on to another drug? Uh, my experience with most of the people addicted to OxyContin that I've seen, it's really part of uh, multi-drug abuse. They're addicts. Um, you know, addiction is just very common because most of us were not born with great brain chemistry. We don't feel good a lot of the time. A lot of people are depressed or anxious. They're not sleeping well. And people look, get sick and tired of feeling sick and tired and crummy. So they look to a drug to feel better. And some of these people get addicted. The OxyContin, it's not as if, if OxyContin didn't exist that the vast majority of people addicted to it wouldn't have problems with other drugs. They would. The problem is the OxyContin added uh, a powerful substance that they en- ended up overdosing and there have been some deaths, but I think it's in the big context of multi-poly drug abuse and alcohol, and um, people need rehab, they need therapy to stay clean. It's not easy, whether it's from OxyContin or alcohol or Valium or any other drug. Unfortunately, the recidivism rate, just like people ending up back in prison, people end up back on drugs because if their underlying crummy brain chemistry is not treated, if their diagnosis of bipolar or anxiety or depression is not treated, they'll self-medicate with whatever drug to feel better. Now, on another study, there was a, a good study recently on a new nasal spray for adolescent migraines. Now, it wasn't um, 
officially indicated for adolescents for migraines, but this was a good study anyways on Zomig nasal spray for adolescents with migraines. Now, 25 million people in the country have migraines, and a lot of adolescents, and they would rather take the drugs called the triptans, which are Imitrax and Zomig and Maxalt and that sort, rather than painkillers because just like adults, the kids feel better with these. They lift the headache away. The triptans go after the reason for the headache, which is low serotonin, and they're not just covering over the pain. In this study, kids took Zomig nasal spray early in the headache, and it was relatively successful and pretty well tolerated. There were no serious side effects. We've used this nasal spray for a number of years in our uh, practice more in adults. It is off-label in adolescents, but I think that we don't want to just give painkillers to adolescents. And it is a problem because we end up with on-label, off-label You know, when drugs come on the market, they come on for very narrow indications. But if you find that it helps a different group of people or something, it's called off-label. That doesn't mean that it's dangerous or it's bad. It just hasn't been gone for for that indication. If your physician feels that it's safe and effective for that condition, it's not that you can't take it if it's off-label. Unfortunately, in pediatrics and adolescents, a lot of the drugs that are used are off-label because they were developed more for adults. Now, Susie, I know you're a migraine sufferer, or as they call it, a migraineur, or actually probably be a migraineuse in French. Or migraineur might be both men and women, too. But migraineuses, uh, you're a migraineuse. You have migraines. Yeah, I'm and, a migraineuse. Uh, you used to take Excedrin, I remember, but then when Imitrex or Maxalt, which are the triptans, came around, uh, do you feel a lot better with those drugs? Oh, absolutely, because they really just end the headache. When I would take Excedrin, what it would do is dull the headache, make it a little bit more um, bearable, but it didn't really go away. When I take, and hopefully for many people out there, when us Triptan users take one, it lifts the headache, it's gone. Unfortunately, you sometimes have some kind of strange and uncomfortable side effects that linger for a while, but they're a lot better than having the migraine. Yeah, it's nice when that headache lifts away. Now, in a more serious study... It was about doctors and suicide. Uh, Primary care doctors do not consistently ask their depressed patients about suicide, research showed. Patients frequently visit their doctor when they're depressed, and while they might not feel comfortable talking about suicide, they usually will share their thoughts and feelings if it's broached in the right way. According to the researchers, the topic of suicide was broached by the physicians only 36% of the time. Patients who made requests get more thorough and appropriate care. So the patients who are more aggressive, talking about their depression and suicide, end up getting treated more. And uh, more inquiries from the physician are needed. And the issue is, why don't we ask about suicide? I think that uh, there's a number of reasons. A lot of docs don't feel comfortable asking about it. And when patients are saying they're mildly depressed or mild to moderately depressed, when you ask them, you know, are you suicidal, it brings a whole different flavor into the conversation. It's it's saying um, other things. It's saying, you know, are you really mentally ill? Are you thinking of killing yourself? It, it's a subject that has to be broached. The other thing is, what if you get a yes? What if you get it legally? This is another situation where the legal aspects uh, where doctors are under the gun uh, really screw up a lot of medical care in this country. Legally, 
if I ask about suicide and the person says yes, well, what do you do? And documenting. And if you document it and they go on to commit suicide, which um, a good 10 to 20% of people with depression lifetime will commit suicide, complete suicide, it's high, but it's true. Um, the families often look on who's on the bottle, uh, you know, the antidepressant, and they sue. They decide, well, we'll get some money and we'll sue the doctor. Somehow it's like shooting the messenger. And then they get the records and there's a note, you know, suicide discussed and he had some suicidal thoughts. And the family and the lawyers say, um, well, why didn't you call the police? Why didn't you call the army? You know, there's very little that uh, the doctors can do in a lot of situations. There's all kinds of rules and HIPAA and legal. So it's not just the uncomfortable aspect of asking about suicide, but what do you do with the information and the legal aspects, too. But uh, it has to be asked in people with depression. If they are suicidal, uh, ideally we should talk to the family. And there's actual, actually formal suicide assessments that some of the psychologists and uh, doctors use to see how suicidal, how serious, do people have a plan, uh, have they actually tried anything. Some people uh, say, well, it comes into my head, that uh, I don't want to live anymore, I feel so depressed, I feel so crummy, but I would never do it, and I haven't thought about it, I haven't have a plan. That's one thing. Other people have a plan, and they say, I have a gun, and I've thought many times about how I'll shoot myself in the head, when I'll do it, etc. That's an advanced plan that's uh, a lot more serious. Susie, uh, what do you think? You know, I agree with everything you say, and while I have not had your experience, obviously I'm not a doctor uh, seeing a patient for specific concerns, I can understand where a doctor uh, or maybe some other kind of health care provider is reluctant to ask how the person is feeling emotionally for risk of opening up a Pandora's box. On the other hand, of course, if the health care provider is able to ask, maybe just some quick early intervention could really help that patient, maybe getting into a group situation, maybe seeing a therapist on a short-term basis, maybe even for some people just talking to somebody in a professional way or to a professional about their concern might give them enough feeling that, hey, maybe I should go talk to somebody else about this. Absolutely. You know, it's gotten more complicated, too. There's less and less hospitals that have psychiatric units where we can put people. Insurance is very tough. Uh, it's very tough to get into a psychiatric unit. Uh, Insurance-wise, you have to have certain criteria. And if you're actively suicidal, uh, that would allow admittance. But um, it is tough. So the money aspects come in. And going in the hospital has never been a panacea or an answer for suicide, yes, while somebody's in the hospital, it's safer, although you still can do it. Uh, but if you look at studies on borderline personality disorder, for instance, in suicide, which is relatively common, about 15% of borderline personality patients will um, commit suicide lifetime, uh, they tend to do it within four or five days of being in the hospital. So the less we hospitalize them, it seems, uh, the better. So there's no great answer uh, but if, if somebody is actively suicidal, we don't want to give them a lot of pills that they could overdose on and die. We want to limit it. Uh, that's the lucky thing about the newer SSRIs like Prozac and Zoloft and Paxil, et cetera. 
They're much safer in overdose than the older antidepressants. Those older tricyclic antidepressants, once they got into your system uh, and you overdosed, uh, people often died. They affected the heart, the kidneys, uh, in much more severe ways than the newer ones. But I think suicide is an important topic. It's a depressing topic, but it leaves a lot of fallout, and it tends to happen a lot in younger people, uh, also older, and there are certain profiles of who's more likely to commit suicide. Older men with financial and health care concerns combined fit a profile, but anybody can, and it leaves a fallout. It leaves a lot of anger, leaves a lot of guilt. It's a huge problem that doesn't just affect the person, but it affects the family and friends forever. Let's return to the Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com. Once again, here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins. Now we're segueing into one of our favorite spots, which is uh, emails from listeners. You can email us. Uh, you can go to our website at HeadacheDrugs.com, where we have all of our shows archived. You can email me at DocLarryRobbins at AOL.com, and it's also on the website HeadacheDrugs.com. The first, Dear Susie, you were talking, uh, we did talk on a previous show, about self-esteem in kids. Uh, I personally think that it's the number one thing we can give our kids. What do you think? Well, I think I, I agree that it's very important for kids as well as obviously adults to have it. And as we all know, it, it certainly gets instilled at an early age. Um, I think it's great. I think we as parents have to remember to be genuine about it. Uh, that when we say something to our child or to another child is that we really mean it and not to follow some prescription of, okay, now I know I'm supposed to really build him up, you know, out on the, uh, hockey rink, so I better tell him how great he was. Now, it's always good to, to be positive and say, you know, you did really well, you worked really hard out there, but do we re- want to tell our kids something that's not true either? I don't think so, and I think that's where we have to be able to help to nurture and build our kids' self-esteem without saying things that aren't true. Yeah, I think, uh, interestingly, there was a study recently in adolescence where they responded much better to being told that they worked hard in school rather than, you got A's, you got really good grades. But I think building self-esteem is important, obviously, but I think there's a big difference between that and creating self-absorbed, self-centered kids. And if I can jump up, let me see if there's a soapbox around here for a minute. You know, I think we have a bunch of 20 to 30-year-old or 17 to 25-year-old kids who are relatively self-absorbed. And this has been talked about before because they're raised to think they're the center of the world, that everything they do is marvelous and wonderful. And as an example, somebody was saying that at concerts or at comedy clubs, sometimes one of these 20-year-somethings will get up and start talking or jabbering at the performers in the audience and stand up. And they think that uh, they're the center, that mommy and daddy always thought they were the greatest and so cute and wonderful and interesting and funny. Uh, why doesn't everybody, and they don't understand that the world doesn't always want to hear everything they want to say all the time. So the trick is we want to build self-esteem, which I think will come about naturally if we have a decent relationship with the kids. And it, it does help to have uh, mom and dad's input 
into the kids uh, because they get different things from each parent. Uh, you don't necessarily need that to have a well-adjusted kid with self-esteem, but it helps. But we don't want uh, we want respectful kids with some manners, and um, we don't want kids to think that they are the end-all, be-all. Uh, it, it just leads to a narcissistic adult that's going to have poor relationships and not be real happy. Suze? I agree with that, um, and I think we have to you have to look at the individual kid too. I think you know we've talked brought up the um, uh, the subject of resilience, and maybe we can look at resilience with self-esteem in in some sort of odd way. And that I think some kids cannot get enough good stuff from their parents or real um, confidence building and grow up to be really confident kids. For whatever reason, they're able to get through uh, a dysfunctional childhood and to do really well as adults. You can also have kids who had parents who were there for them and really built them up and uh, cater to them, and they can grow up not only maybe without good self-esteem, but also a real lack of confidence in themselves. Very well said. Now, there's another question from listeners, Dr. Robbins. Can the osteoporosis medicines hurt my jaw or my heart? And that's a good question. The osteoporosis medicines, mostly uh, Fosamax. There's now actually a once-a-year intravenous Fosamax-type medicine that uh, works once a year. It's given. There's a once-a-month Boniva, and then once-a-week Fosamax or Actinel. And the jaw problems have been rare. Um, they have these drugs have led on rare occasions to this necrosis or um, destruction of the jaw, which is a serious problem. And people with a lot of tooth problems and decay and problems in their uh, dentally are more of a setup for that. And recently there was a question, do, can these medicines lead to a faster heartbeat or what's called tachycardia and uh, that issue has to be resolved but really the bigger issue is osteoporosis and outside of exercise weight bearing where we want people to uh, lift weights at least uh, five or ten minutes once or twice a week um, a couple sessions even with dumbbells really works uh, general exercise can help but taking calcium and vitamin D vitamin D is the crucial part. And there's two types of vitamin D, D2 and D3. A lot of times in multivitamins, there's D2, and it doesn't do much good. It has to be D3. So that's cholecalciferol is D3. So you want to take uh, D3 as a supplement, just vitamin D, extra supplement, or your calcium with D, and generally at least 800 units of vitamin D a day. Osteoporosis really cripples millions of people as they get into their 60s, 70s, 80s. And it's a much bigger issue than the rare serious side effects, but these are real. Now, Susie, uh, you're on Actinel, which is one of the osteoporosis medicines. Why did you go on, and uh, have you had any side effects? I started on Actinel a little bit over a year ago, and... I started on it because I'd had my first bone density test, which showed that I had osteopenia, which is kind of a precursor to osteoporosis. I don't have osteoporosis, but I need to really uh, strengthen my bones so I don't get it. And so I've been taking Actinel once a week, 
or almost every week. I do forget occasionally. Now, how did they find that you had osteopenia, which is right a mild early form of osteoporosis, pre osteoporosis? In having a bone density test. Right. And I got a call back from my doctor, and she said that I really needed to consider getting on one. Now, for some other listeners out there who might have also had this issue that I did, uh, at first it wasn't I wasn't sure that I'd be able to go on one of these um, uh, bone-strengthening drugs because I have had GERD in the past or reflux. And apparently my understanding is that for some people that have uh, have reflux, they have a tendency to have problems or not be able to tolerate uh, Actinel and similar drugs to that. But I've been taking Actinel and I've had no problems. Yeah, the uh, Actinel Fosmax medicines can give severe esophagus problems with reflux. Uh, but again, it's it's not that common. Some people, though, can't take these medicines because of that. You know, as, as good as I feel that I am taking Actinel because I, I do have confidence that it is going to help me, I also, in, within the last year and a half, have started a regimen of weight training using weights and also going on the treadmill. Although I don't go on the treadmill as often as I'd like, I'm really trying to do it at least every other day. And everything I hear and I've read is that um, walking, running on the treadmill or outside really can help your bones. So I, I've really been trying to do more of that. Yeah, it's the old, uh, I like the old Weight Watchers ad, uh, adage, move more and eat less. And if people can just do 10 minutes every other day and they just have the motivation, that is moving more, and that's the idea. Now, in another study, uh, it's interesting, there was a class action suit against Target and the Target Corporation website because of it's not accessible to the blind. A federal judge in California allowed a class action against Target claiming that the discount retailer's website is inaccessible to the blind. This is a tremendous step, it was said, forward for blind people throughout the country who for too long have been denied equal access to the Internet economy. And it was felt that this discriminated against the disabled. Now, it's very important. I think the Internet is very important to people who are uh, partially blind. Uh, and I think that everything that every site can do to allow better access uh, is important. I'm not sure all of the things that they can do. If a listener wants to uh, tell us and um, email us at DocLarryRobbins or uh, at AOL or go to HeadacheDrugs.com, uh, it would be great. We'll we'll talk about it in a future segment. But opening up the internet sites and the commercial sites to people who cannot see very well is terrific and necessary. Now, there was another interesting article this week about after having a heart attack, people who get depressed, who go on an antidepressant, if the antidepressant does not work for their depression, they tend to have another heart attack. It was an interesting study looking at responses to antidepressants after heart attacks. You know, there's been previous studies where they put everybody on an antidepressant like Zoloft, 
and they tended to have less recurrent heart attacks. We're not sure about why. Is it because people are a little less anxious uh, on antidepressants or some effect of the antidepressant on the bloodstream? Uh, they do have mild blood thinning effects. Now, in this study, they looked at a lot of people, several thousand, who had had a heart attack, went on antidepressants, and they reported that uh, the recurrent heart attack rate was 25% among depressed patients who had not responded to antidepressants, but it was only 7% uh, among patients who responded to antidepressants. They concluded that these findings provide evidence that patients who don't respond to treatment for depression have an increased risk for another heart attack. And what that says to me is maybe we should switch antidepressants, push them, get people into therapy, but that continuing depression after a heart attack, which is not that uncommon, uh, is really a risk factor for another heart attack. You know, heart attacks lead to a change in lifestyle. It brings about mortality. People realize they're not going to live forever, all kinds of things. Sometimes people lose their jobs or cut down, and uh, they cut down on uh, physical activity and sex, and it changes everybody's lifestyle, uh, and it leads uh, a lot of times to depression, depression. Sometimes the medicines people are on for angina or for heart attacks uh, contribute to depression. So we need to treat that post-heart attack depression. You know, it's interesting talking about depression. There's not been that much talked about uh, the difference between feeling really depressed and having a depressive personality. I think that when you're really depressed, it's a horrible feeling. And I tell people all the time, and they nod, uh, because anybody who's had depression knows that it's the worst thing in the world. Uh, depression causes, uh, screws up your life, your quality of life, your family, your job. Uh, you can't perform. And um, it's that feeling of just being, being down and depressed and horrible and blue versus the what I think of as a depressive personality where, where somebody just feels everything's negative, half class, empty. Um, they, feel, they may feel hopeless, but they don't necessarily feel chemically depressed where it takes over their brain. You know, it's a, it's a funny distinction. Susie? You know, that says to me that there's lots of different kinds of depression. You know, some people might have a major depression where they don't want to get out of bed, they don't want to eat. Maybe part of it could be stemming from... A severe loss in their lives. For others, it's just the way their brain chemistry is and that they go through bouts of major depression. Other people might just on a regular basis feel crummy, but they're going to get up, they're going to go to work, they're going to take care of their daily chores and what they have to do in life, but they don't find a lot of joy out of a lot of things. And there's a word for that called dysthymia. I know you've described in the past where after taking an antihistamine, uh, you feel kind of drugged over the next day and just feel kind of depressed. But as the day goes on, it, it wears off. So obviously for all of us, nobody ever feels happy all the time. But there's lots of different ways to be depressed. That's a good point. Um, in the antihistamine, if I take uh, like an antihistamine, I just have a bad reaction where I just feel blue and depressed. But I'm not hopeless 
and everything isn't half glass empty. I just chemically, the whole brain feels depressed. And I'm telling you, if I felt that way 24-7, like a lot of people with chronic depression, it would be really tough to function. And I understand why people can't work. We're building the best internet talk radio on the planet. It is worldwide. TalkZone.com. TalkZone.com. Let's return to the Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com. Once again, here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins. Now, in another study, it's an interesting look at anorexia as an addiction. Scientists from France have found that anorexia, where people feel that they're fat even though they're skinny and they stop eating, basically, anorexia and the highly addicting drug ecstasy activate some of the same brain pathways. In a paper published this week, uh, the researchers report that both anorexia and ecstasy reduce the drive to eat by stimulating the same subset of receptors, and it's called, for all you scientists out there, 5-HT4, the serotonin 4 receptors, which are also involved in nausea and constipation. The serotonin system in the brain is crucial for anxiety and pain and depression and headaches, but it's very complex. At any rate, they're looking at anorexia maybe as an addiction or a reward-relating problem, and I think that's an interesting slant on anorexia. When people get into the mindset of counting calories and they come down from 1,500 a day to 1,000 to 500, and everything they put in their mouth is thought about and counted, I think that there are some relationships between anorexia and addiction. Classically, anorexia is tough to get at. Therapy can help. Some medicines can help, although medicines, the antidepressants, tend to help the bulimia more. Bulimia is where people vomit or throw up after eating a huge amount. But we do need better treatments for anorexia. It's fairly common, and interestingly enough, we're seeing more anorexia in men. It's still more, much more prevalent in women, but men are not immune from getting anorexic. Susie? You know, you said how it's really tough in helping anorexics. I remember when I was just getting out of grad school working on my MSW in social work, and I was at a high school, and there were some girls there that had that issue. And I remember hearing some of the social workers there talk about how uh, these girls really needed to see uh, somebody outside of school with lots of experience in treating anorexia because it's very, very tricky and that uh, your garden variety therapist should not be the one uh, working with an anorexic, mainly because it's so life-threatening, and if things aren't working, you know, these people can die very easily, so they really need to be with someone who really understands the disease. Absolutely. Eating disorders are tricky, and particularly anorexia, bulimia. I think obesity, in my mind, is easier to work with somebody. There's more set treatments, and it may not always work, but anorexia is really a different animal. And it is incredible to talk to somebody who's 65 pounds, absolutely skeletal, and how they pick off their skin and say, see here, I'm fat, and they view food as the enemy, and putting something in their mouth really makes them sick and nauseous. Suze? Not that long ago on the show Intervention, which I think we've spoken about here on the show uh, where they typically show people with addictions such as alcohol or heroin or cocaine abuse, they actually had a, a young woman 
who was anorexic on the show, and you could actually see her wasting away as the show progressed. Now, in another area, there was an interesting study on high white blood cell counts predicting cancer. Now, high uh, white cells are part of your blood system. You have red cells and you have white cells. So this test called the CBC tests your white cells. It's a cheap, little, easy test. And they looked at women after menopause, postmenopausal women, who had elevated, increased white blood cells, and it seems to increase the risk or predict the risk for certain types of cancer. Now, increased white cells can be seen with a number of conditions, mostly infections raise your white cell count, or if you're on cortisone, prednisone. But they they seem to indicate increased white blood cells, infection, or inflammation in the body. Now, according to the study, women, uh, this is postmenopausal women, with the highest white blood cell counts had a 15% increased risk of breast cancer, 19% higher for colon cancer, 42% higher for endometrial, and 63% higher risk of lung cancer than women with low white blood cell counts. Now, most people will not develop cancer. Uh, these are just relative increased risks. But what it says to me, if we have a woman after age 45 or 50, uh, maybe younger, but I don't know if that's been looked at as well, but certainly if we have a woman with an increased white blood cell count towards the higher end, maybe we should do more cancer screening down the line uh, if this is predictive. It does lead to more tests and more costs, and anytime you do tests, you're going to find false positives where you see something and then you chase it down, but maybe we should do screening in women after age 45, 50 with increased white blood cell counts. Now, you know, this is another test that you could do to chase down then your risk. And there are proactive people who want all the tests and to look, and then there's people who just sort of go along their life and hope that nothing happens, which is not a terrible way to go because then they're not constantly worrying about it. Uh, Susie, where do you fall? What would you do with a test like this? Well, okay, I'll give you two answers to this. The first is... Uh, being married to you, I probably would go ahead and get it because we talk about these things a lot and probably would end up worrying about it and say, oh, what the heck, let's get the test. However, on a more serious note, I think it, for people who have family members who have had those diseases such as colon cancer, lung cancer, breast cancer, maybe it wouldn't be such a bad idea if you know that one of those cancers run in, run in your family. Yeah, I think that uh, that's a great point, taking in family history. If, if you have a family history of uh, lung cancer, for instance, you have a high white blood cell count, you're 55, maybe do year, yearly screenings, CAT scans of the chest would be a reasonable thing to do, especially if you're a smoker. Of course, I think if you're a smoker, to do CAT scan of the chest regularly is a good idea anyways. Now, in another cancer study, they looked at kids of uh, parents with cancer, and children whose parents have cancer often suffer from post-traumatic stress symptoms that adults underestimate. Post-traumatic stress involves anxiety and depression and a number of symptoms. The study, which the researchers said was the first to track these symptoms in adolescents over a long period of time, found many children of cancer patients suffered telltale signs with anxiety, depression, etc. The other symptoms include recurring nightmares, uh, and an inability to stop thinking about the disease, as well as 
conscious efforts to avoid hearing or knowing anything about their parents' condition. They just didn't want to know anything. The researchers said that we thought the symptoms would decline over time, but even after one to five years after the diagnosis of cancer in the parent, the children still had the symptoms. Experts say post-traumatic stress includes irritability or outbursts of anger, sleeping difficulties, trouble concentrating, uh, extreme vigilance. Your, your whole nervous system is all kicked up and on edge, and an exaggerated startle response. A person may initially respond to the trauma with horror or helplessness and then constantly relive the event. Now, post-traumatic stress was originally described. It's been common in uh, people who've been in battle, in war, but uh, abuse can lead to post-traumatic stress, rape, various incidents, or recurring long-acting abuse or incidents, but also among kids with uh, whose parents has, have cancer. Now, as time worn on, uh, some of the kids showed increasing symptoms of post-traumatic stress. It got worse. The researchers thought the symptoms would decline over time, but it really didn't always work out that way. Girls seem to have the most problems, perhaps because these children may feel responsible for taking on more duties at home with a sick parent. The kids may become what we call parentified, where they're essentially uh, doing some of the parents' work. The team of researchers also said that uh, kids whose parents have cancer were more seriously disabled in some ways psychologically than when the parents have other serious chronic diseases because dying from the cancer is always a possibility and the kids know that. If the kids know their parents have some chronic disease but they're not going to die, uh, it relieves a lot of the symptoms and the pressure. Susie, what do you think? Well, you know... We probably can't imagine a worse fear for a young child to think that their parent is going to die. You know, not only do they love their parents more than anybody, but to imagine being left alone, it must just bring up such abandonment issues for kids. And even after the parent heals and is okay, uh, we can certainly imagine how traumatic that would, that must have been and how it, sta- it can stay with the kid the rest of his life. Yeah, kids are narcissistic by definition, and uh, they must feel, where does this leave me? You know, I'm, I'm going to be alone or without my mom, without my support. And the younger we are, sometimes we're more narcissistic. We take things more personally. For instance, you know, a 15 or a 20-year-old tends to take things a little more personally or narcissistically. If somebody comes by, a stranger comes by and says, uh to them, you know, hey, idiot, you're ugly and get off the sidewalk. You know, they may uh, put up their dukes and say, you know, you can't say that to me, blah, blah, blah. If you say that to an 80-year-old, they may look at you because they've become over time less narcissistic. They may look at you and say, "Uh, you know, buddy, you must be having a bad day. They're not taking it so personally and narcissistically. So kids do. A parent has cancer they just feel, where does that leave me? Susie? You know, and I think also it has to bring up, uh, or a, a side uh, issue to this is kids that have a sibling who is going through cancer treatment. And, um, you know, I'm sure it's been looked at in terms of what does that do to the child who may not only survive 
but um, you know has lost a brother or sister to cancer or whose parents are constantly having to take care of that brother or sister uh, who has cancer or maybe some other life-threatening illness um, that has to just really play upon the healthy child, you know, in terms of guilt, also abandonment of parent in terms of not being able to get all the nurturing because mom or dad are so busy with the other child. Absolutely, it's devastating. But I think that one thing that's happened in the last 30 years is we used to think, oh, kids will be fine, don't worry about it. Parents are divorced, parent has cancer, sibling has cancer. Now we think of therapy. We think of getting the kids, uh, and we think of the emotional state of the kids. So I think uh, it's so devastating if you have a sibling who has cancer or uh, leukemia or lymphoma and is going all through that, that some therapy really is warranted. Susie? You know, kind of a flip side of this is a child who loses a parent to cancer, say, maybe they, they've known about it or they know mom or dad, dad has been ill. Not that they can prepare, but, but they have knowledge of it. I recently read an article about um, how the kids of 9-11 are still suffering so much from losing their parent, whether in an airplane or at the Pentagon or the scores of firemen who left children. In fact, there is a camp that's held once a year in Massachusetts for children of uh, New York City firemen who go up there, and it turns out that these kids just really are having a lot of trouble relating to other kids, but once they get up with these other kids who have also lost a parent in 9-11, they just have this openness to each other that's amazing to see. You know, it's wonderful that they have a camp like that. Uh, the problem with one-on-one therapy with kids is that they may not be at the stage developmentally where they really get the most out of therapy. Some therapy is better than nothing, but it may take until they're in their 20s or 30s to really get over, uh, if you can, the loss of the parent. Now, in our last study, uh, they looked at calories taken in quote-unquote healthy restaurants where people ate someplace that they thought was healthier. Interestingly enough, uh, Subway, uh, the Subway sandwich chain, if you go to a Subway, uh, you'll tend to get much healthier uh, selections than at Burger King or McDonald's, but people really underestimated how many calories they ate at Subway. This is important because a lot of us eat fast food, a lot of the world eats fast food, uh, Americans are getting fatter and fatter, and the question is why? Part of it is supersizing. Now, in the study, they gave people at McDonald's a 1,000-calorie meal and people at Subway a 1,000-calorie meal, but the people eating at Subway thought they were getting much fewer calories than the people at McDonald's. So at least the people at McDonald's realized it. Susie? On a personal note, I used to love to have the vegetarian sandwich at Potbelly's, and I thought, oh, I'm really doing well here, getting the veggie sandwich. It has lots of vegetables on it. It has cheese. It's healthy. But then I found out that the calories in that were as high as almost every other sandwich there, including the uh, meatball sandwich. But I wasn't taking into account for all of the cheese, and they put mayo on it, and then what else? They put some other really high fat. Oh, I think there's avocado in it. And the oil usually. And the oils. So by the time, you know, you've got all these different ingredients in there, might as well just have the meatball sandwich. 
People always ask me, is there an easy diet they can follow? I say, sure. It's the old adage, uh, if it tastes good, you can't eat it. But seriously, we've talked about dieting in the past, and I think that it's complicated. There was a study of people who kept weight off for at least five years, and they all tend to do the same things. They tend to graze throughout the day. They count their calories, which is crucial. So you have to know calories or Weight Watchers, which is a great program, points. They all exercised a lot. They had stuff at home. They belonged to clubs. They had something for walking outside. People tend to eat small meals. They they did graze. But it's hard work doing all this. It has to be in your consciousness. It just ain't easy. And a lot of people, as we get older, uh, we're following our uh, parents and grandparents as far as our metabolism. So if you look at four generations, they all tend to look alike. Some people all look like uh, pears or muffins or... You know, you look at parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and everybody looks alike. So it's tough because our metabolism goes down naturally as we get into our 40s, 50s, 60s. Sometimes I think the emphasis is too much on being thin and not enough on being in shape. Well, we're about out of time. That'll wrap it up for Susie and myself. We're here each and every week with interesting medical issues of the day. If you want to get a hold of us, you can email us off of our website at headachedrugs.com or it's Robbins at AOL.com. See you next week. You've been listening to The Dr. Robbins Show featuring Larry Robbins, MD, and co-host Susie Robbins, MSW. Learn more about Dr. Robbins online at headachedrugs.com and join us next time for more about health and medicine right here on The Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com.